Hey there, everyone. Michael Lee Bryan here. And today I have the immense privilege and honor of being able to sit down with none other than Demetra George. Demetra, how are you? I'm doing very good. Thank you, Michael. It's been a lot. This interview has been a long time trying to happen. And I'm really <laughs> pleased that we're here now. It most definitely has. I, I think the very first time that we connected to make this happen was about a year or two ago for uh for a summit or something like that. And then some things came up and then we kind of drifted out of connection. Right. And a mutual uh, a mutual friend, uh, Ronnie Dreyer, was the one to make this happen all over again. Yes, yes. <laughs> she was. I was actually having a a uh, complete heart lock emergency at that time that I was supposed to be zooming in to connect with you. And yeah, that was a very memorable afternoon. <laughs> it, it definitely, it definitely. <laughs> I, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was, I was, <laughs> I was sitting down waiting and then I got your email and about what happened and I was like, oi vey, wow. I know. <laughs> it, it was a lot but, but but anyway i'm so grateful to be able yeah. to connect and i'm and you know once again ronnie was really our bridge in terms of yeah. in terms of making this happen and for those of you who don't know Demetra george is a hellenistic astrologer extraordinaire and Demetra, at this point uh the, your two most recent books have been about hellenistic astrology but i know that you've been publishing books forever and so I, I, I definitely want to talk to you about about everything, but really I want to find out from you, how did you get into astrology to begin with? Well, I, <clears throat> let's see, if it was my first awareness of astrology, I was in college at um, New Pulse, which is a little bit north of New York City in New York State. And I had heard of some upper class people driving into New York every week to attend an astrology class. And I thought that was so exotic, <laughs> <laughs> fascinated with it. And then they raved that their teacher also cooked them dinner when they showed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was um, a number of years later, probably three or four or five when I had moved to Oregon and was living on a commune in Southern Oregon. And there were dozens of astrology books that I'm not quite sure who left around, but I picked them up and I was immediately fascinated. And then uh, two years into it, I went to my very first astrology conference and uh, I was like, you know, a 1973, three, two hippie with long <laughs> hair and braids and probably flowers and checked <laughs> out in my vest <laughs> be shocked at uh, all the other women in high heels and lipstick. Um, but there was a very nice woman sitting next to, standing next to me in the lobby. And that turned out to be Eleanor Bach, the astrology mm. teacher who was teaching my friends and cooking them dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave me a copy of her newly published book on the asteroids. And so that started the whole first phase of my career in um, writing asteroid goddesses 10 or 12 years later. 
That's really, really interesting because I was going to ask you whether or not you were familiar with Eleanor Bach because <laughs> I have a friend in in New York and, and you know, it's, it's interesting yeah. how life is circuitous yeah. because of a friend of mine, Faith McInerney. It, oh, yes, I know Faith. Exactly, exactly. And so Faith really works a lot with the asteroids. And she also studied with Eleanor Bach. And so I was going to check in with you and see whether or not Eleanor Bach was someone whose paths you crossed with as well. And and I mean, it, it's wonderful that you did. Right. And, I, you know, we recognize sometimes our fate lines cross with someone years before we actually like make the physical connection. And it's fascinating. Um just seeing those threads when the tapestry is more developed. Definitely. Now, now, Demetra, I know that the asteroids were a very big part of your work previously. And I, I from what I know about you, I know that they're still a big part yeah. of the work of the work that you do. Is that correct? Absolutely. And during all of the years of the um, Hellenistic studies, I continue to see clients. I continue to put the asteroids in their charts, not only the four major asteroids, but I worked off a list of 500 others. Um, and so the asteroids have been there from the beginning and they still are. And it's just sort of knowing like how to not mix up systems, but to use them as like, different layers that you're looking at simultaneously. I think that that's a really wonderful thing, Demetra, because one of my backgrounds, besides just medieval astrology and Renaissance astrology, is also Uranian astrology. And I know that you know, as well as most people know, in Uranian astrology, there are TNPs or transcendental right planets, which for all intents and purposes are hypothetical because they don't have a physical body, but they're kind of a part of the rich undercurrent of the Uranian system. And there really wouldn't be a Uranian astrology. I mean, there is still the form of Uranian astrology that you can practice without the TNPs. And we know that cosmobiology kind of came out of that. But at the same time, when we talk about Uranian proper, we're specifically talking about the system of astrology with these eight hypothetical planets. And a lot of times people ask me, you know, how do you separate your relationship to Uranian astrology from your relationship to traditional astrology, where there are more hard and fast rules and systems that we follow? And I don't find that to be, I don't find that to, it doesn't manifest within me as a major separation that I need to think too hard about. So I, I want to find out from you, Demetra, in terms of your work with the asteroids, as well as your work with Hellenistic astrology, do you find that to be a challenging juggling act or did it ever manifest for you as a challenging juggling act between those two systems of astrology? Um, no, it, it never did. And my belief is if we operate from the as above, so below concept, and everything in the solar system and beyond has some correlation within the psyche. Everything connects, but it's a matter of finding out there are certain points in the chart where the significance is much greater than other points in the chart. So it's finding the power points, the power axes, and then seeing 
what planets, what TNPs, what asteroids, what fixed stars are there. And then those are the ones that will come forth. Awesome. Now, another question that I have for you, Demetra, just yeah. because we have the asteroids, which is a very big part of your work and so many people today are getting interested in the asteroids but we also have the discovery of further planets beyond pluto so for example i interviewed someone once henry seltzer who oh, yeah. is very much interested in in working with eris and that's something that he's very passionate about doing and i just want to check in with you are you also integrating other planets such as eris and sedna within the context of your work um yes to some extent but i had focused my the whole first part of my career was the focus on the asteroids then hellenistic astrology appeared that took over almost everything and now that that work is finally completed it's like, oh, yeah, I haven't done the fixed stars yet. I haven't done <laughs> the trans-Plutonian planets. Yeah. And there's the realization that um, no matter how long a life is, one will not get to everything there is to learn in our tradition. Yeah. So at a certain point, you do what you can and know that you will never like have a complete um, representation. I, I think that's so beautiful because... Even me at this stage in my life and at this stage in my practice, there are so many things that I want to do. And I was speaking with Kenneth Bowser the other day, who said to me, you know, hey, Michael, you know, you have a really good thing going on. Stay with that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because there, there's, there's so much within astrology and there's so much that really speaks to our hearts. And there's there's all of these ways that astrology just mushrooms out. And it's very easy to get lost in the morphic field of what astrology is. And so I, I want to know from you, do you feel like your focus in on the asteroids and Hellenistic astrology really represented for you a point of saying, you know, this is it for me. This is my um, hard stop right now in this lifetime. I'm doing asteroids and Hellenistic astrology. Or was there or is there still really this interest in terms of discovering more and, and learning more for you? Well, you know, I have my moon in an exact conjunction with Uranus in the North Node in Gemini. And so it <laughs> is the process of learning whatever <laughs> stimulates the creativity and passion. So I would realistically be unable to say this is it <laughs> because it's always oh well, look at how fascinating that is. And that's what keeps the excitement flowing um so and yet at the same time knowing not everything that sparks my curiosity will be something i will follow through on but i can't help but consider it like <laughs> just a little bit to find out what it is it's just like part of the nature <laughs> got it got it got it now I completely understand that because I think that there's a part of me that's really stabilized in terms of what I do and what I offer and what I teach at this stage in my life. But there's still the spirit of discovery for me in terms of saying, you know, like there's there's just so much to learn. 
Oh, absolutely. And you're at the stage of your career and practice where it's important that you stretch way out to see all of the different approaches that are possible and to have some familiarity with them because in the course of your life, you will have clients who connect with those other modes. And it's good to be able to respond to them, to relate to them, to have some context for the place where their questions come from. And then um, as you do that stretching out, there will be certain approaches that will call to you because you have some connection with those teachers, with that work, with that lineage, and to recognize that and have that be part of your focus, but never to block yourself off from the expanse of what is. Awesome. That's my, <laughs> that's how I see it. <laughs> it's a good philosophy. <laughs> Okay, so so a genuine question for me. Faith is someone who I've I've worked with for a very long time and I love her so dearly. And within my entire years of working with Faith, she's always used the asteroids. And there has been a part of me, and I don't really know why this is, because there's a part of me that's been able to expand more readily to accept the trans-Neptunian, and as you rightfully said, the trans-Plutonian planets in terms of what we use in Uranian astrology, because I feel as if that's built within the context of that system. But the asteroids have always seemed like they don't really belong to any one system. So it's not like there's an asteroid astrology that the asteroids belong to. I mean, they tend to float around within the various systems of astrology that people practice. And so, even though I've always worked with faith with the asteroids, I've never actually brought them into my own practice. And one day she said to me, Michael, when you're older and wiser, <laughs> then you'll start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Michael, I will ask you, have you ever looked at your list of 22,000 asteroids? <laughs> and <laughs> gone through and to see which ones were conjunct your angles and your sun and moon and ascendant ruler. And especially look for the names of people with whom you have had or do have close relationships with. And that will be the thing that will utterly floor you as to their um, specific, their, their significance with being so specific. And sometimes I joke that you know, it wasn't ancient astrology that brought me increasingly to a sense of the fadedness of our lives, but it was the asteroids that took me there instantaneously. Right, you know, one of the, you know, many personal name asteroid stories that I tell, but one of the earliest ones was that Prince Charles has the asteroid Camilla and the asteroid Parks conjunct his Venus within 30 minutes of arc. Wow. And so from the time he was born, his heart was connected to someone who carried the vibration of that name. And once I saw that, like whatever I was holding against him about Diana, just like <laughs> melted <laughs> because there, there it was. And I could tell, you know, dozens of stories 
about how the name asteroids totally will link into um, your life. And so that's what forces you when you see that in your own life. That's what forces you to say, well, maybe there is something here that at some point or another, I will return to and look at more closely. Amazing. Amazing. Well, is there an asteroid named Gary? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you only have to order your 22,000 list. <laughs> you can go to astro.com and just follow the prompts and with your chart and put in the asteroid Gary and it will come up with its um, placement. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to look for that because Gary Kristen just sent me a text message. So <laughs> I'm going to look for the asteroid Gary. Right. Gary helped produce the asteroid goddess report. So um, Amazing. That we wrote through solar fire. So um, we have that um, joke going back and forth. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Now, so another question that I have always wanted to ask you, Dimitri, yeah. is, is that we have, and I don't know if this always existed in astrology, but we have this notion of the specialist in astrology. So I know that today a lot of people have crowned you the asteroid goddess and also the Hellenistic astrology queen. And so you're specifically known through these two lenses, but I want to know from you, is that how you define your practice or is your practice for you something more expansive than just Demetra, the asteroid lady or the Hellenistic astrology lady? Let's see, I've also done a huge body of work with the lunation phases. Um, and that would probably be the third main area of focus and in the last um few years i've stopped doing client readings after 35 or 40 years it was um it was becoming challenging keeping that clear flow going energetically and i still have the book that needed all of my attention in order to complete. But during the years of um, all the many years of doing client readings, really often when people come to you is because there is some angst going on in their soul. There's some big question, there's some source of suffering, there's some confusion. I mean, if your life is great, um, you rarely think of going to an astrologer to find out what's happening. <laughs> it's only when you've been exhausted many other possibilities that you know you'll um, come up with that. And so the work of astrology is really about being there in for many people is one of the most intimate moments of their lives where they totally open their inner soul that normally their persona keeps protected and shielded. And it's the ability to feel their issue and look at the chart and find some way of making a connection between the two 
so the person can walk out of the session with some sense of meaning or purpose or redemption of their lives. And whatever approach it is that allows you to do that, then that's what, as an astrologer, you are called upon to do. Um, and then, as we said, fate dropped in my lap the asteroids with Eleanor giving me her book when I was a brand new astrologer. And I have another such story with my encounter with um, a project hindsight. And then it's like, that's what responding to what is given to you. And then like doing the work to carry it forth. This notion of fate is something that we speak about a lot in traditional astrology. And in traditional astrology, we tend to be very fate-oriented people to a very large degree or destiny-oriented people to a very large degree. So at what point in time did you either feel within yourself the impulse to move towards a more traditional astrological expression of your practice or at what point in time did you know within yourself viscerally that traditional astrology was where you actually needed to root your life's work when i first encountered traditional astrology with um the work of robert zoller i hated it <laughs> <laughs> and it totally offended like, everything with, within me uh, and that was at the height of the asteroid and um, mysteries of the dark moon and goddess work that I was presenting um, primarily to women's spirituality communities because the astrological, like, we don't want to have anything to do with this. It's like, go away. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and this sounds terrible and I, I don't know if I really mean it, but I think that when one is younger, there are more potentialities and possibilities that one can envision about how one's life is going to turn out. And at that point, there is more of an openness to we are in total control of visualizing and manifesting our future. And as life goes on and you see many of the things that you thought might be possible, no longer possible. And then you see what in fact has been, is what the chart actually said all along, that there is a, a shift that happens. Now, this doesn't mean that fate is the final word or the astrology is the final word. And I totally have seen and, and I'm open to miracles and to grace and to religious fervor and conversion, not being connected to any particular religious practice, be able to intercede and shift the indications of astrology. But that often that takes more than putting an affirmation on your refrigerator. And that is operating in a completely different um, 
uh, sphere. And maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> I could do more of a, a commentary, but I think that's that's good. No, I think that it's really definitely in harmony with my own relationship to the whole argument between fate versus free will. I say to people that I practice concrete event-based astrology, and that's kind of where I've always dug my heels in because I think that astrology does have the ability to manifest in a very concrete event-based mm -hmm. way. And that's what really turns me on the most about it, because that is our closest opportunity, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of proving that astrology is is valid. And I know that these are crude words, proving yeah. and valid, but I mean, it's it's the proof is in the pudding. And I, I love how you described that the longer we live life and the longer we start to see our lives taking on the shape of a very specific gravity or taking on the shape of a very specific type of magnetism where we continue to magnetize towards ourselves and attract to ourselves very specific sorts of things that we've always attracted to ourselves. I think that that shows us that even though we want to feel as if we have more freedom and more possibility, our lives do carry this greater responsibility to fulfill a destiny that we're all born with right you know i've sometimes um spoken about that issue with the whole um acorn seed that if you have an acorn seed in the beginning which that seed is like our natal chart the seed potential it may grow into a number of different kinds of trees that bear acorns, but it's never going to be a tomato plant. Or a <laughs> <laughs> and something that Rob Han had said that really what our lives are about is uh, trying to become the best possible expression of that which we inherently are. And that's a way where we have some control over the shaping of the final outcome of our life while staying true to what is the seed pattern that our life can grow into. Why do you think, Demetra, so many people within astrology, and I'm specifically thinking about Alan Leo, because I'm currently wrapping up the final edits of my own book on traditional astrology, and a part of that writing process has been trying to explore at what point prediction became such a vehemently demonic term to use within astrology. At what point did we as astrologers start to hate prediction? And a lot of that research has taken me specifically to Alan Leo and the ways in which he vehemently spoke against prediction and said, hey, you know, it's a it's it's a fool's errand to predict in a particular type of way and and the exoteric astrologers are completely driven by this notion of fate and as if they cannot change their natal possibilities by one iota and so like he really goes on for a major chunk of his life to talk against astrology as a predictive practice but i i want to know for you within your own putting traditional astrology more at the forefront of your practice what has been some of the response that you've received from the non-traditional community 
in terms of the traditional astrology that you practice and that you write about? Well, first of all, Alan Leo had his great realization after he was arrested for fortune telling and then redesigned his work so that it would be more psychological and open-ended in nature. So um, that needs, that always needs to be kept <laughs> in mind <laughs> when <laughs> understanding this conversion. <laughs> And then, of course, uh, I think his conversion was also part of um, his becoming a theosophist and going to India and learning about the doctrines of karma and reincarnation. And um, one of my um, Buddhist teachings said that um, if you wonder who you were in a previous life, look at your present circumstances. And if you want to know who you will be in your future life, look to your present actions. And it may have been somewhere in that teaching uh, that Leo would have undoubtedly encountered with um, the philosophy of India that began to reshape his thoughts about how through our right actions, we have the ability to shape what comes about in the future. And there's no doubt that that plays um, a huge role in human development. Now, um, the second part of your question was, um, how did the astrological community respond? I remember being part of a, a fate and free will panel at some ESAR conference <laughs> <laughs> that Glenn Perry was moderating. And Rob Hand and I were on one side of the debate, and Glenn and several other psychological astrologers were on the other side of the debate. <laughs> and and um, there was, um, of course, a philosophy of total fatalism leads one to a state of utter despair that there is nothing that you can do or nothing in the world that will change this um, destiny that's laid out for you. So why even try? And there's a danger in landing there with an extreme belief in fatalism and the other power of prediction. And it's easy to predict in hindsight. But what we need to understand is that each of the um, astrological factors, the signs, the houses, the planets, the aspects has a range of expression and significations. And it's quite impossible for the astrologer ahead of time to know which of 75 different significations of a planet is gonna be the one that is triggered when a certain timing activation happens. And so that prevents total belief in the power of prediction and faith and fatalism. After the fact, you can look and go, oh yeah, that was one of the 75 ways Mars <laughs> can manifest. Because easy. So it may not be that it's impossible to predict, but the, the astrologer's capacity to do so is um, 
simply not there, um, nor will ever be. However, with <clears throat> everything that's happening with the AI now, um, it might be a different story after uh, Pluto gets into Aquarius and um, the world of AI becomes um, increasingly predominant. <laughs> there is there is so much there, and I I think yeah. that I I think that this whole notion of of fate versus free will is something that is it seems like it's a bit of a moot argument in a sense mm -hmm. because so much of psychological astrology has to do with uh, at least being able to delineate the personality of someone. And I think that even that constitutes a type of prediction because when we look at the birth chart of a child, yeah, you know, when we look at the birth chart of a child and say, okay, this child will have this sort of personality, we're still in a sense predicting something about them. It, it may not be a, a concrete event, but we're still predicting something. So I think we can't really take prediction out of astrology because all right. astrology is predictive. Right. And yeah, but again, this is what um, Zoller used to say, that you can't take a person's natal chart and 50 years later still make accurate statements about their personality and character without that already having been predetermined to some extent. And you can't make predictions about what will happen if that was also already set into place at the beginning. Yeah. So there is that reality that we need to hold as we have this debate about how much of our life has already been set into place and how much of it there is some flexibility in shaping. And of course, this was the big... Um, philosophical and religious debate that has always existed um, in astrology in the Hellenistic world and in the medieval world and in the modern world, people confronting astrology have had the same conversations that we're having right now. And I, I think that right now, at this moment in astrology, it's it's really interesting because more people are willing to stand on the fate side of the discussional divide and i think that that has to do with the resurgence that traditional astrology is seeing right now i mean so many younger astrologers so many millennial astrologers are identifying their practice as hellenistic or based in hellenistic astrology and your work has largely been a major force in terms of that and so I, I want to know from you, in terms of having such a foothold in the younger generation, why do you think Hellenistic astrology has become such the force that it is within the hearts and the minds of really young people to a large degree, but just in the world right now? Um one theory that has been suggested about why astrology has risen and fell over time, become more and less popular, more mainstream and more underground, has to do with the level of 
insecurity that a culture faces. And they point to during the third, the second millennium BCE, astrology developed in Mesopotamia, but not in Egypt that were adjacent. And they both had big skies and they both looked at the stars. But by and large, Mesopotamia, one invader after the other kept coming into the area and taking over. And in Egypt, you had incredible stability that happened for thousands of years. And so when times are uncertain, there is more of a need to want to know what's going to happen to you and feel that you have control over being able to see that. And now is like between climate change and the economy and the politics and um, there is so much uncertainty about what the future is going to hold and many times um, a lot of fear that for the younger generation um, that we as a generation had a very stable youth but with epi epidemics and COVID and all of that and so with that heightened level of fear and stability, uncertainty, um, finding a system that makes you feel as if you have some sort of control or knowledge is very reassuring. And I wouldn't eliminate that possibility from the current surge. Now, the other explanation is that it's such an elegant system and it's sort of like mathematics that you have your operating principles. And if you know them and you turn the wheel and crunch it, you come out with a very um, predictable or stable or realistic or grounded result. And one of the um, things of modern astrology is, you know, it was steeped in free will and planets can manifest in all these different ways. And then after you learn the basic meanings of everything, well, how do you read a chart? And it was said, well, you have to find your own voice. And so then it was a crack shot as to like <laughs> what you're going to say to the client. <laughs> it's like looking at the chart. You didn't know where to begin to say, oh, that's an aspect I can say something about. <laughs> and like, you'd look for something else that you can comment on and going, oh, how many more minutes do I have? Until mm -hmm. Right. And with the Hellenistic, it's a system that provides a solid structure underneath the chart that once you see that structure, then you understand the core and then you can add the details. And that is very satisfying. Um, uh, so it's also that the Hellenistic system gives more of a sense of grounding in knowing what you're doing and knowing how to say something that actually makes sense from the very beginning. Definitely. You know, so many of my own students who have come to me over the years 
have said, Michael, I've practiced astrology for 30 years. I practiced modern astrology for 30 years, 20 years, and I still don't know how to read the chart. Mm -hmm. I hear that over and over again. People continuously say that. And when they come and they study traditional astrology with me, they leave with this sense of gravity and a system and a rubric. And it's curious for me because I wonder if this is such a pandemic of modern astrology that people study for years modern astrology and then they go to conferences forever and then they take all of these modern astrology certifications and they leave with this deep insecurity and in how to perform a confident act of astrology what what do you think it is about modern astrology that's that's preventing I don't know if it's people who teach modern astrology or or whatever but what do you think it's about modern astrology that's preventing itself from organizing itself in a way that actually allows people to feel as if they can perform as functional astrologers when they're done with that training. When I first um, got into astrology in the 1970s, there was a reaction across my generation against the um, fatalism of the previous astrology. And we had um, a very um, incredible interest in psychological astrology that was the new form of our generation. And one of the points I've been making recently is that each generation that encounters astrology will play a role in reshaping it so that it will reflect back meaning to them relevant to their own concerns. And because we're fascinated with psychology, with Jung, with the psyche, with the healing of the soul, then we wanted an astrology that would be more open-ended to being able to discuss those ideas relevant to our interests. Um, so I think that that's what part of the psychological revolution was that probably started with Alan Leo because he needed to protect himself from the law. And then um, as you go back and you read the uh, textbooks of the 19th century, increasing, you see how the psychological mode slowly slips into the meanings of planets and significations. And then you get to a point where anything can mean anything and nothing means nothing. Um, and that there's once again a reaction to wanting um, uh, a system that offers greater stability and greater security. And I'm especially fascinated with a number of the concerns of your generation now with um, redefining gender issues and redefining power issues and how that reshaping will now happen to our language um, by your generation. And you'll come up with new words and new concepts and talk about them in your podcasts and write about them and lecture about them. And slowly that 
perception and that vocabulary will seep in and become mainstream um, as you mature and grow in your astrological careers. And to try and figure out a system where the new vocabulary actually works. So it's kind of fascinating to me that we didn't know about hardly anything about traditional astrology until about 25 years ago. And we've gotten the great gift and good fortune to see what was it like at the beginning of our time. And so to take the ancient wisdom and then bring it forth with the concerns of the current time. And we'll see something again, totally unique emerging from that future, from that fusion in the future. I think that's really a beautiful place to to envision things from because, and I think that you've had the, I don't know if it's the luxury or the the privilege of being able to see these different epochs of astrological history in terms of this revolt of people from the old form of fatalistic astrology to then move into the psychological to then see the resurgence of of classical astrology come kind of full circle and what i've always loved about traditional astrology like you just mentioned is this stability that we have throughout the entire landscape of what we call classical astrology so whether we're referring to hellenistic astrology or medieval astrology or even renaissance astrology which tends to simplify things quite a great deal we still find this collective undercurrent and we find william lilly saying things essentially that was said by firmicus and we find people like john gadbury saying things that was said by paulus alexandrinus and olympiodorus and so we see this cross-cultural thing happening now what i want to know from you demetra is i think that there's this I don't even know if it's a conscious demand, but there's this request of people to say, well, what type of traditional astrologer are you? Are you a Renaissance or a medieval or a Hellenistic? So I, I want to know from you, how important do you think is this demarcation within the larger sphere of traditional Western tropical astrology? I don't think it is very important. Um, and it's true that there is a continuity between the earliest writings that we have that form um, the, tradi the tradition that is the direct ancestor of what we do. And that even though there were gaps in translation and transmission, by and large, um, astrologers looked to the writings of those who were before them and tried to stay faithful to, the, to them at the same time, adapting them to what was going on in their time and their culture. And that's the beauty of astrology, that its core remains unbroken while it has the ability to shape shift to different cultures, which ensure its continuity. But going back to your question, I was 
my work in traditional astrology began with um, having the opportunity to teach Hellenistic to the first students of Kepler College that was under the supervision of Robert Schmidt. And so that's what was presented to me. That's what I developed. But as the book went on, and especially in volume two, I increasingly followed the doctrines through the Arabic, medieval, and Renaissance traditions. And so that was part of it, why we called it ancient astrology. And of course, I couldn't call it Hellenistic astrology <laughs> because that title was already taken. <laughs> um, and I tried to do some, something else with it, with what I was um, doing. However, I want to point out that Hellenistic astrology was an amalgamation of the Babylonian Mesopotamian with part of the Egyptian tradition and with the Greek um, philosophy and astronomy. And in the Babylonian tradition, it was not deterministic at all in the beginning that they understood the planets as manifestations of the deities, one of the, one of the many manifestations. And when a planet appeared in the sky, it was indicating its intention. Um, however, those weren't solid or firm, they were negotiable. And this is where the tradition of rituals, which they called them burby rituals, was petitioning the gods and said, hey, is this really what you have in mind? Is this really <laughs> what you want to do? It's like, can't we talk about this? Can't we like make, you know, <laughs> negotiate here so that, you know, I can have a better outcome? Because really, once I tell you my story, you'll see it really is. <laughs> and so it was that incredible flexibility that was part of what flowed into the Hellenistic. And so we have to be careful that we don't say that traditional astrology, it's like, how far back do you want to go of whether it's, you know, how predictive it is and how negotiable it is. And now we're seeing a tremendous interest in astral magic um, among many of the, especially young practitioners. And that is one of the counterforces to total fatalism is finding those cracks where you can negotiate the outcome. And so I think whenever a people encounter the total inevitability of something, there will be a force within the human spirit that wants to counteract that. And that I imagine that ultimately that both of them are legitimate to some extent and not as fatalistic as the so-called strict traditionalists would want and not as co-creative as the so-called magical um, self-creating would like, but it's somewhere um, in the middle path. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting that you mentioned astral magic because you, you are right. There are so many people who are getting into astral magic and astrological magic and yeah. as, a, as a thing in general. And I want to know from you, how do you think 
the astrological magic movement fits within the larger traditional astrological revival? It is definitely part of the astrological tradition and has always had a place. However, um, by and large, it has remained underground and obscured. And for the reasons of protecting the practitioners and the teachings. And in the um, earliest um, Hellenistic astrology, there is a very strong hermetic tradition that's the core of the magical tradition of the correspondences throughout all the realms of nature and um, how that is has always been um, part of um, astrological magic. But then what happened in the Hellenistic times was the um, rise of Christianity becoming increasingly powerful and the dispute between the one God of monotheism and the many gods of paganism. And as astrology then became um, illegal in the late Roman times and then practitioners um, punished by the church by being excommunicated or denied baptism. The astrologers tried to make astrology more scientific and to remove the magical religious element from it so it could go forward and took the gods, so to speak, out of the planets. And then that tradition went underground and I've been trying to follow those threads from out of like, what am I curious about and what am I distracting myself while I'm supposed to be doing this? <laughs> but I think a lot of that went to um, Haran, to the Sabians of Haran that already had a tradition of astral magic from both the Iranian Persian culture and the Babylonian culture. And there it took shape and then came back into Europe in the, in the 12th century, um, but went underground in Western Europe. And now that it is re-emerging again, I can't help but have some concerns in today's political climate. And what triggered my own sense of foreboding, one might say, is when um, Samuel, the Supreme Court Justice Alito, wrote, um, I forget what you call it, his thing on abortion. And he cited um, earlier jurists as part of his justification. And those jurists um, lived during the pre-colonial era and were involved in sentencing women to witchcraft and being killed for that. And so while he didn't say that's also what they did, he was citing them as his justification for his decision on abortion in current times. And it just 
I don't know, the shackles went up that should this current political climate increase and take over, then people who are involved with the magical practices of astrology may come increasingly um, under, um, you know, I don't quite know what the word is, um, becoming more visible and there being problems. Let's just put it that way. I don't want to use too intense words. So I have mixed feelings about it. It's always been part of the tradition. It belongs there, but it's also been kept obscured for good reasons. And that would be something that perhaps um, astrologers might want to take into consideration. I think it's interesting that you bring up this point about the legal system and the legalities surrounding us doing what we do. I was speaking to one of our astrological elders the other day, and she was saying to me that she started practicing astrology and she had her astrology practice coming up through the 60s and the 70s. And she saw how every other body of fringe science practitioners were able to organize themselves. She said, I saw the yoga people organize themselves and come together and make an alliance. I saw the acupuncturists organize themselves and become a credible profession. I saw the chiropractors organize themselves and become a credible profession. And the astrologers, I'm sure it's not just the astrologers, but she said the astrologers were the only ones who didn't take advantage of that moment of becoming a credible profession that has legal parameters and that also has legal protections associated with it. So my question for you, Demetra, is what do you see the future of astrology being in terms of us being able to organize ourselves, like the chiropractors, like the acupuncturists, in terms of actually having a respectable, reputable presence in the world? Well, I have a very contrary opinion on that <laughs> to <laughs> what is popular. <laughs> and now I'll preface it by saying when the AFAN organization first formed in the early 1980s, there were many laws on the books against fortune telling. And that was the main thrust of AFAN's finding those laws on all the local and city and state books and then working to overturn them and freeing astrologers from being arrested for, for that. And so that that was an effort that was legitimate and that was made and part of the freedom that we have now in practicing was due to those efforts. And I should mention Jage Jacobs' name is like spearheading that effort among others. Um, however, I think that ultimately it's good that astrology not be organized, not be mainstreamed, and that as long as the popular culture thinks that we're entertainment and superstition, it allows the serious work to continue unimpeded. 
astrology was always a mystery tradition. If you read the works of the ancient astrologers, they'll talk about it in terms of initiation and keep these teachings secret and don't, you know, give them to anybody. Make sure they're serious, um, safe people. Because there's two reasons why I feel astrology should not be mainstreamed. One is that there's tremendous power in it. And kings and leaders have had their court astrologers throughout history and use astrology in very destructive ways to look at the charts of their potential rivals and have them assassinated and all kinds of things. And you can imagine if some of the people in politics today had access to what astrology could do, it would be extremely dangerous and falling into the wrong hands is extremely dangerous. The other thing that distinguishes the astrologers from the chiropractors and the yoga practitioners is that no other profession alludes to the possibility of um, knowing the will of God, knowing what God's intention is for an individual lifetime. And it's that clash with the predominant religion of the day that is as dangerous for astrologers as is it falling into the hands of dictators and authoritarians who would use it in destructive ways. So from that point of view, and again, it's an unpopular opinion, but it's my opinion. And <laughs> I'm glad that astrologers didn't organize and that people aren't trying to claim insurance. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> so so I hear that completely and I, I I hear exactly what you're saying. And I think that there's this other thing that is happening at this moment yeah. in astrology where every single person who has access to the internet, who can Google right. astrology for one day, yeah. then wants to hang their shingle and say that they're a professional astrologer. So I, I think the difference here is that the acupuncturists have a very sure set of guidelines for what it means to be an acupuncturist. There's licensing involved in that. There are legal ramifications surrounding that. But when it comes to saying we're astrologers, for you and I to say that we're astrologers is a very different thing than if my cousin Bertie <laughs> was to go on the internet and say, oh, I found out something about being an Aries. So I, I want to know from you, in this generation where everyone is an astrologer, and, and you and I were talking about this the other day over tacos at, at, at the hotel, that, you know, it's, it's one thing to teach a class with beginners, knowing that you're teaching a class with beginners in mind, but very often the people who come to our classes, they think that they're advanced practitioners and advanced students of astrology, and they don't know the difference between a Dexter square and a sinister square. So I, I guess what my question is for you is if we're not moving towards licensing or accreditation or something more established, 
then how do we actually create a set of standards or guidelines that actually allows these incoming burgeoning astrologers to know exactly where on the astrological food chain they are because a lot of people think that they're very big sharks but they don't know anything at all so how do we how do we establish those standards okay well the good thing about everyone knowing about astrology now because of the internet is so many more people are understanding why they are the way they are and leading to healing and self-acceptance and all of that so that's wonderful about the net being cast really wide and then of all of those people some will become more serious and stay with it and others will phase out of it now, the question about how do you ensure that who's left is knowledgeable, one might hope that if you're a bad astrologer, you're not going to have much of a practice. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll start looking for something else to do. <laughs> and if you're a good astrologer, you'll people will continue to come to you. But in order to certify, you need to have tests and in order to have tests you need agreement within the astrological community about certain principles and doctrines and while we think that we're all speaking the same language in fact when you get down to the details you discover that you're not at all and i remember some years back being asked by one of the organizations to be part of a committee that created a certification exam. And we're all supposed to come up with questions and answers and throw them into the pool. And I remember one very famous <laughs> reputable astrologer saying, oh, well, you know, Pisces is on the midheaven and the ruler Neptune is in the third house. And so the correct multiple choice answer to this question is yada, yada. And I go, no, it isn't. The, the ruler is Jupiter, and Jupiter is in the <laughs> other house, so that answer wouldn't be correct at all. And then realizing, I'm not going to get into a food fight with this person. And seeing the um, challenges that, as a community, we have in agreeing upon the details, and any test that's created can only reflect the points of view of the people, the astrologers in power that create the test at that moment. And so that there's an inherent foundational problem in certification. And I've been on a little bit of a bandwagon rant with some of the certification tests where um, people are being asked to calculate, do the math using Placidus house cusps. And I said, well, that's okay that they learn how to do that. But when you get to the interpretation questions, you need to allow them to designate the house system that they've been taught by reputable teachers and have developed their expertise in. And that has gotten like pushback. Um, and at that point, but again, that's another instance of how the whole testing is problematical. 
So until like we solve some of those problems, um, the test is not really a test that's going to certify what someone knows and what they don't know. And then you have the astrology student who has done well in all of their studies, all of their exams can, you know, just call forth what every planet and sign and house and aspect mean. But when they have a chart in front of them, don't know how to read the chart. And you have other astrologers who are a little bit fuzzy on the details. And they tune into that other faculty of divination that's always been part of astrology, the sort of direct divination. And they feel the energy and they can give a wonderful reading. So being able to answer multiple choice questions on the test does not really give the measure of how well a person does when they're confronted with a chart and a client. I mean, I think that you and I are really of the same opinion in terms of in terms of the actual proof in the pudding is can you read a chart? Because at the end of the day, no one cares if you could spell equator backwards. We just want to know, can you actually read a chart and do it well and represent the system of astrology that you practice in a way that's actually solid? I was talking to a student of mine the other day who says that she follows a lot of astrologers on YouTube and people who claim they practice astrology. And there was a person on their YouTube channel telling people about the effects of the transiting part of fortune. Yeah. And so... And so, I mean, I mean, th there are people who literally have they know no astrology they've received no teaching they have sat down to study notebooks they literally know nothing and they're talking to people about the transiting parts of fortune for the world as being a valid interpretive right. factor so i mean i i think at the end of the day the the I don't know. I think this is a real conundrum that we have in astrology because some of the worst astrologers who shouldn't even be called astrologers have the largest presence yeah. anywhere. So I'm, I'm, I'm also trying to struggle within myself and see what can I do to, to even if not create a testing scenario, but what can I do within my own house and my own teaching to ensure what the next batch of astrologers looks like? Like, I think it's a question that we all have to ask ourselves as a community. Right. Be a good teacher. Teach your students well. Do your best to make sure that they understand what you've taught them and then send them forth. And what is good about traditional astrology, teaching it, and also teaching and learning the math, is that it trains the mind to be logical and to have reasoned conclusions from working with the symbol system. And, you know, what I've taught, like, the analysis of planetary condition. And I say, we will all come up with different conclusions 
as to how well this planet is likely to function in the chart. And it's okay that our art of judgment is different, but what I want to hear from you are what are your reasons for arriving at this conclusion? And if you have solid reasons, then it's as good as the next person who has a reason thinking process. And this is what the training and traditional astrology does. And that's part of why it's so valuable that it be taught and that it be taught to all the new astrologers who are embracing it because that's the built-in system for making them be better astrologers in the future. Exactly, definitely. Demetra, before we leave today, and this has been such a wonderful conversation and I'm so happy that we got to do it. But before we leave, you just mentioned when you teach. So if our listeners and viewers wanted to step into the world of Demetra George and they wanted to receive a class with you, where are you teaching or how could people study with you? At this point, I'm... Um... No longer doing my five-day retreats that I had for three consecutive years, um, because I, at my age, I don't, I don't want to make a the final commitment three years from now. Um, however, I have recorded all of that material in terms of classes that are available through Astrology University, and I think in October a new class starts in beginning Hellenistic. Um, that each week I go through example charts, there's homework, we go over the homework, there are live Q&As that accompany the recorded sessions. And I wrote the books as a sort of self-teaching tool that if you just follow the instructions and do the exercises, you can get through from beginning to end. If you want to hear my, you know, asides. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can go to the Astrology University site under my name, and there are a number of courses in Hellenistic that I have recorded um, that you can, some that you can just download immediately and others that are offered with um, Q&As after each lesson, live Q&As after each lesson. So that one, as I said, we starting sometime in October. Awesome. Awesome. And I know at the beginning you said that you're no longer giving readings. Is that something that you're pretty settled on forever? Or can people expect for you to dive back into a client practice? I don't think so. I've, I'm settled on that. And really the reason is, was that for I probably started doing readings in the by the late 1970s. So I don't know how many years that is, 40 plus years. Over 40 years. Right. And during that time, the readings flowed. Like for the most part, you you weren't exactly sure when it started, like where you had an idea where you might go, but you weren't exactly sure. But the moment you encounter hello then <laughs> 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 it was it, it just was this never-ending stream then um in the last uh year six or nine months 
I felt as if my nervous system was like burnt out that after a reading, I'd be in such a sort of um, hypoglycemic state of crash. I couldn't get it to stop. And that my clear mind energy would start running out before the reading was over. And occasionally I'd go, I have no idea what to say next or this means. And so um, it was at that point, it's okay, like I'm done. And so to recognize that they say that, you know, the spirit of astrology, the muse of astrology moves from one vital host to another. And as long as your energy is strong and moving, it will come through you. And when it's exhausted, your resources, it'll move on to someone else. <laughs> and so that there's a wisdom in knowing when that time has come. Mm -hmm. And so I'm still good at teaching um, and I'm good at doing the podcasts, but the special quality of energy it took for readings, like that's finished now. And it's like good to know when the end is the end. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. All right. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that to yeah. me because I'm going to listen out for when that happens for me. And and last question before we leave to Not me. Not for years. When you see some of the young astrologers, you go, oh, that one. <laughs> you're one of that ones that will. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Listen, Demetri, last thing I want to find out from you before we leave is any more books, are there any more books that we can expect to come from you? Maybe. <laughs> it's like I need, um, I'm doing um, a continuation of my work on the decans for the um, Astro Magica conference next month. And then my publisher would like me to do that translation with an introduction. So I might do that. Um, I have another trip to Greece maybe a year from now that I'm um, discussing with Dennis Harness. We had a business of ancient oracle tours um, for a number of years together. So those are two possible projects, but I just don't wanna be under any deadlines anymore after, 45 years of being under a continuous deadline. It's like, I want the luxury of maybe. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. Listen, Demetra, this was such an amazing time to spend with you. And I'm so happy to have been here to finally have this conversation. Um, <laughs> and, uh, likewise, it's an honor to connect with you. And I feel totally reassure this to the future of astrology and hands such as yours thank you thank you thank you so much Demetra and to all of our listeners out there if you've enjoyed this episode of the Oraculous podcast between myself and Demetra George by all means please like this podcast share this podcast and subscribe to the Oraculous podcast anywhere you find us on the internet until next time I'm your host Michael A. Bryan leaving you in peace and love and hope until we meet again have a good one Bye-bye. Can you send me a headshot or can I just look for a headshot for you online? Somewhere? Yeah, I actually do have the headshot that was used for the book. So um I will I can do that. I can do <laughs> if you can email me. <laughs> right, there's a lot of stuff I can do. <laughs>